0: good singing. Hosea chapter 11 verse 12. It's been a few weeks now since uh, we considered the first 11 verses of Hosea because of our guest last week And, and so we're glad to be back to Hosea. I remind you while you're turning there to the very last verse of Hosea 11, uh, how this begins. Uh, this begins. This book begins with uh, Hosea, the prophet, uh, of the northern kingdom, or to the northern kingdom, being called upon to marry a harlot, a prostitute, uh, as the scripture describes her, a whore. And... Uh, That, of course, would not be the right thing to do. Uh, God tells us not to be unequally yoked, and so we should not be. But in this case, God commanded him to do this in order to make a point. This was not evangelistic dating. God does not prescribe to that. But uh, it was God speaking in this unique context historically to make a point to his people. We know the rest of the story after the first A few couple of chapters uh, of Hosea trying to win uh, Gomer back and Gomer living with other men, even having children with other men. And then God turns and gives his interpretation of all this and shows them that Hosea represents him. He's the holy one. He's the right one. And Gomer represents them. They're the unrighteous. They're the ones who are philandering. They're the ones who are living unrighteous lives. And they've been doing it with many different lovers. The nations surrounding, we've seen this already in preaching through Isaiah. We have Assyria with whom they flirted. And Assyria came and wasn't good for them. We, we, we also know that Babylon, the Babylonians are coming. We know that Egypt has often been someone that they have entertained, which which really just tells you how irrational sin makes you, right? Everybody should be nodding because right there you think, yeah. I mean, they were delivered from Egypt. They pled with God to be brought out of bondage from Egypt. And then they flirt with Egypt. They try to have an affair with Egypt? They call on Egypt to help them? What's this all about? Well, sin makes us stupid. Uh, And so it shows up in this. Well, here we are again. We've seen a lot of repetition in chapters four and following. I told you there would be because God is, is, is bent on making a point with his people to convince them that they are wayward, that they are sinning and the various and sundry ways in which they are sinning and he keeps calling them back. Now we've also seen something else and we'll see it in this passage. The reason God warns his people over and over. The primary reason is not just so they'll know what's going to happen to them if they persist in their sin, but you all know by now... The primary reason God warns his people is not for that purpose, but that they might be brought to repentance, right? That's the reason God always warns us and tells us we're going the wrong way, is to bring us back to the center point, back to Christ. All right, with that, let's go. Let's read. Hosea 11, beginning in verse 12, Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is the largest tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so often, Ephraim is just used to to speak of Israel. And that's the same. It continues here. Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. Judah is still unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is bought, brought to Egypt. The Lord also has a case against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his mature strength, he contended with with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and implored his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. And the Lord, the God of armies, the Lord is his name. So, as for you, return to your God, maintain kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. A merchant in whose hands are fraudulent balances, loves to exploit. And Ephraim said, I have certainly become rich. I found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they will find in me no wrongdoing, which would be sin. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival. I have also spoken to the prophets, and I provided many visions, and through the prophets I spoke in parables. Is there injustice in Gilead? Certainly they are worthless. In Gilgal they sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like stone heaps beside the furrows of a field. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and Israel worked for a wife. And for a wife, he kept sheep. But by a prophet, the Lord brought Egypt or Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet, he was protected. Ephraim has provoked God to bitter anger, so his Lord will leave his guilt for bloodshed on him and bring his disgrace back to him. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Father, thank you. For this, your word, and we ask now that you bless these few moments for our good, that we'd hear these words, that we'd not be like Ephraim. We'd not be like Judah, even. We would repent of our sin, our wrongdoing, no matter how great or how small we may think it is. We would turn to the Lord who loves to forgive sinners. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. History is a wonderful teacher. However, you have to listen to it in order to learn from it. You also have to, have to know how to read history in order to benefit from it. We've seen in several occasions up to this point, the Lord taking Israel down memory lane to remind them of various things. And now, in these just these very few verses, it's like he does it again. Only this time, it's in concentrated uh, quantity. You know, it's it's it's. There's no dilution. This is like full strength plus. He just goes one historical account after another, and these are all high points in the life of Israel, or. We might say low points in the history of Israel for the most part. So he's doing it again, rehearsing history. We saw Paul do that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He did that for an example, he said, so that the people would remember what God had done in the past. Why? Because if you know what God's done in the past, you can recognize what God's doing now and you'll also be able to know better what god's going to do in the future god's the same yesterday today and forever that's the reason we study history it's the reason we like to we like to look and observe god's providences is because it tells us about god's character and his work in our midst so we have four points let's get to them the first one is this god reminds his people of their present reality their present reality is God brings to their attention Ephraim surrounds me with lies that's the present right now Ephraim is lying to me why in order to deceive He goes right on to say that Ephraim surrounds me with lies and the house of Israel remember Ephraim and Israel the same people with deceit That's pretty self-explanatory They're lying we might say, well, I'm, I, I'm not lying, so I guess I'm off the hook here. This is not for me. Well, no, let's keep in mind, just like Paul told the people of his day, it, it's the same thing today. All these things are written as examples for us. We don't look at God's history as a history book and just say, "Ah, oh, that's what happened back there. That's the way God acted back there. We look at it and we say, oh, that's, that's how God acts. And that's how God instructs, and that's what God wants us to understand so that we, too, will hear and repent. So don't forget that. We're not just looking at this to to see what happened way back then, but we're looking at this about what happened way back then so that we can know now how we should then live. Ephraim surrounded me with lies, house of Israel with deceit, Judah is unruly against God, even against the Holy One who is faithful. Lies, deceit, unruliness, disobedience. Now, a word about verse 12b. This is what I was talking about when I said I'm reading the American Standard, and I'll explain why, because it's the better translation. The ESV has gone off the rails for some reason on 12b because if you're reading the sv it says something like judah is wonderfully faithful and then you read chapter 12 verse 2 and you're confused right because chapter 12 verse 2 says the lord also has a case against judah why would he have a case against judah if they're doing perfectly fine it's a textual issue and the better text is Reads just like the New American Standard, the King James, the New International Version, and the New King James all translate it just like this. Judah is still unruly against God. That's why God has a case against Judah is because Judah is unruly too. You say, wow, does that mean I can't trust the ESV? Now, if you're just looking the margin, it tells you what it really should have said in the text. It's a text issue. The better text the, it, it tells us, for some reason, the SV followed one that is a translation instead of the original text. Well, everybody can make a mistake. That's a good reason why you're always careful in reading your Bible to compare The notes, um, the marginal references, and be sure that you're understanding. It's also one of the reasons that you want to be part of a good godly church where they're faithful to God's word and they pay attention to it. So Judah is not commended for faithfulness, but is, is rebuked for her unfaithfulness, her unruliness. They, like Israel, lie and deceive. Notice in 1B what we're reading. Ephraim feeds on wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria and oil is brought to Egypt. He's dealing. He's making deals with the surrounding nations. What did God always say to his people? If you will obey me, I will leave you Needing everything for life and you'll have to go out looking for it somewhere else. That's not what God said. God promised them a land of milk and honey, a land that was overflowing with everything they needed. And yet, they wanted to be like the other nations. Remember, that's what got them in trouble to start with about the king thing. Right? God was their king. It was a theocracy. God was the king. But they wanted a king like the other nations. And So God started out with, okay, you want a king like the other nations? I'll give you a king like the other nations, and we'll just see if you like it. So he gave them Saul, and they didn't. And then he gave them one who was a man after his own heart, David, and they did for a while. And then Solomon, and Solomon sinned, and then the divided kingdom, and you know the rest is history. There's hardly, there's hardly a handful total of good kings that come out of the divided kingdom period. They got exactly what they wanted. They wanted kings like the surrounding nations and they got them. Wicked men who, who squandered all that they had and gave it to others. So, they increase in disobedience, even against the Holy One who is faithful. That's stinging, isn't it, verse 12? And yet we do the same thing, don't we? He is faithful, he is faithful, he is faithful. God can't be otherwise. He is faithful, he is faithful. And in between all that, we are not. Now the good news is, is that even when we're unfaithful, he is faithful. But it still doesn't make sense, does it? That he loves us with an unending love. He does for us, he gives us, he lavishes us. And then we commit adultery with the world. We give up his day for the world's play. We do business, Monday through Saturday, the way the world does business. We may pray that God would sanctify our wickedness, but still it's doing business the way the world does business. And so God God speaks, reminds them of their present reality. then verses 3 through 6 in chapter 12, after he said, I have a case, that's a legal term, he's, he's bringing an indictment against them. He's going to punish Jacob according to his ways. He'll repay him according to his deeds. And then verses 3 through 6, we have the second point. God rebukes his people for their treacherous ways. And here he goes to Jacob. In the womb, he took his brother by the hill, and in his mature strength, he contended with God. From the womb, Jacob was like this. He was a he was a He was a cheat. He was a deceiver remember that's what the word means the deceiver so it doesn't it doesn't surprise us that after god has said that these people are lying in order to deceive that he comes back and uses jacob as the example jacob their father in the patriarchal line abraham isaac jacob and you're acting like jacob in the womb but not just jacob in the womb what does it say and in his mature strength He contended with God. Remember, Jacob decided he would take on the Lord. And they have this great wrestling match. And Jacob ends up crippled, limping through life from that day forward. So he's reminded them. Yes, he was a deceiver from the beginning. Yes, he didn't learn his lessons well. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and implored his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. And the Lord, the God of armies, that's the New American Standard Translation of the the God of Host. The Lord is his name. So, as for you, return to your God, maintain kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. See, there it is again. He's telling them who they are. They're liars. They're deceivers. They're covenant breakers. They want to make covenant with all the wrong people and not keep covenant with God. And what's the point of all this? What's the point of the rebuke? What's the point of the indictment against them? Is that they might return to their God. That they might Instead of lying and deceiving and making covenant with others that they might maintain kindness and justice and that they might wait for God continually. So that's part of the problem. They didn't wait on God. I don't know the answer to this. I didn't look it up this week. I should have. The handy dandy concordance is really easy to use and some of the concordances will tell you at the top how many times this word is used other times you have to do the old-fashioned count them but how many times we're told to wait on the Lord in the Bible as I said I don't know the exact number but I'm going to put it in terms of carrots there's bunches there's a bunch of times That we're told to wait on the Lord. And we don't, we get impatient, and we turn to the world for our remedies. God says part of the repenting, part of the repenting action is to wait on God. How long, O Lord? Are we supposed to wait? And the answer is, as long as I wait. And how patient is God with us? How long does he wait for us? God rebukes his people for their treacherous ways. His warnings are intended to bring them to repentance. Then... Verses 7 through 9 are another little section. God reminds his people of their heathen habits. It is to your own destruction. uh, I'm sorry, back up to verse uh, 7. A merchant in whose hands are fraudulent balances loves to exploit. And Ephraim said, I've certainly become rich. Let me stop there for a moment. The merchant spoken of there. Again, some of your Bibles, if you look in the marginal notes, it will say, or Canaanites. The Canaanites were merchants. This is a reference back to the people who inhabited the land that they were supposed to come in. Remember, God told them, you go in, you take the land, and don't leave any of those people living. Well, go back and read the book of Joshua, and you know that they didn't always succeed in that part of it. They often didn't obey God. And so they would leave people living in the land, and those people always became a problem. Always became a problem. And the Canaanites were a a thorn in their flesh forever and always because Israel didn't deal with them the way God told them to deal with them on the front end of this thing. And here they are, a merchant in whose hands are fraudulent balances, loves to exploit. And then notice, but Ephraim says, oh, I've certainly become rich. i found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they will find in me no wrongdoing, which would be sin. Ephraim got the point. They were acting like the Canaanites. They were using false measurements. They were moving property lines. I remember when we moved into our neighborhood, the new built a new house a few years back. All the all the property corners were all marked really nice and neat. Now after you live there a while, you know they get all leaves on them, and up top you get tired of trying to dodge that little stob up there with your mower and ruining your blade so you drive it on down into the ground so you can just mow right over it. And before long, the property lines were obscured. And my neighbor one day put in a string to build a fence. And his fence would have been about that far over on my property line, on my side. So I had to go out and say, whoa, now I don't know if he was doing it on purpose or if he was just working from best memory he had. And, but were it I, I would have gone and asked, hey, do you remember exactly where our line is here? So I had to go over and say, Nate, wait a minute, you know, we've got a problem here. You can't build a fence where that line is. It worked out fine. But there's a tendency To take more than his hours. And the Ephraimites were doing that. God says a merchant, they think he's talking about them when he's talking about the Canaanites. And he's telling them you're living like the world. You're acting like the world. You're acting like the people that you moved in. And see, the reason you have this problem is because you didn't obey me to start with. So this problem goes all the way back to the Canaanites. And verse 10 says... Or nine, rather. But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and I will make you live in tents again as in the days of the appointed festival. And so chapter 9, or verse 9, rather, God goes back. Did you notice something familiar there in verse 9? But I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Every commentator comments on this. That Hosea has drafted, these are the words of the Lord coming out, but Hosea has drafted into this text the prologue of Exodus chapter 20. We read it this morning. And he's taking them back and reminding them about Egypt and how I delivered you out of Egypt. And you came into this land and you're supposed to take it and you're supposed to live holy lives, righteous lives, but instead you're living like the people that lived in the land. So one more time, it looks like I'm going to have to take you on a wilderness journey. And you're going to have to live in tents again. Because you've chosen to live like the world instead of like my righteous people. This is what one commentator says. The crucial events of the Exodus and its subsequent wanderings have to be replayed so that Ephraim may learn how how dependent he is on Yahweh and how grateful he must be for such dependence. The same commentator goes on to say that the exile into Assyria is going to be their opportunity now for this wandering and for this time of repentance, that God will bring them into repentance. God reminds his people of their heathen habits we uh, we have a lot to learn from this, this passage don't we because it wasn't just Ephraim Israel this is the tendency of every generation is to live like the world. To adapt the world's ways to God's ways. Sometimes, I point this out in teaching church history. There are certain world religions and one particularly that most people would categorize as the dominant feature of Western Christianity. And perhaps their chief characteristic is this, when they go into a new land, is to take the existing religions and synthesize them and amalgamate them into their beliefs. Some of you who've been to Peru have heard Alonzo Ramirez talk about this. If you've ever met anyone who's worked among the Muslims in the, the northern, uh, uh, northern Africa or the, 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 the southern basin of the Mediterranean on the North African Sea uh, or a coastline there, you realize that it goes on there. And so Christians, genuine Christians, go into these lands, like into North Africa over the years, and they meet, meet meet people, and they they're having to deal with a Christianity that has been there for many, many centuries, but doesn't resemble at all a biblical Christianity. And so they're trying to help these Muslims... Understand that, no, that's not what we believe. See, in North Africa, what they've done, this world religion has, has taken animism of North Africa and just blended it in, made it part and parcel with their Christianity. That's largely what happened in the tribal regions of Peru. And then you start trying to preach the genuine gospel, the plain, simple gospel. And people are confused because that's not what they thought Christianity was. But you know what? In every case, what we proclaim is a better gospel than a synthesized gospel. Last point, God responds to his people about their hopeless ways. He's called them to repentance. He's told them what their problems are. And then in those last verses, he says now, he says in verse 10, I have also spoken to the prophets, and I provided many visions. And through the prophets I spoke in parables. In other words, he's saying there much what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 1 says, that God in the past has spoken in many times in various ways through the prophets. That's what's being said here. And through these prophets, I spoke in parables. Is there injustice in Gilead? Certainly they are worthless. In Gilgal... They sacrifice bulls. Yes, their altars are like stone heaps beside the furrows of a field. I wouldn't have time to go into this, but there's a word play going on. There's actually uh, actually a pun being used here in the Hebrew. And uh, I'm just, there's three things that's going on here. First is God saying, from Gilgal to Gilead, Everywhere we look, you're worthless. You're acting like the world. There's not a spot in between these two locations that is not going on. Idolatry is widespread. Second thing he's saying is that there is lying and deceit, they're worthless. And they're doing things, sacrificing bulls, purportedly to God. But it's a joke. Their altars are like stone heaps out in the field. How ridiculous is that? You're lying to me. You're trying to deceive me, God says. And that also encompasses God making mockery of their way of doing things. The mockery is seen right there in the sacrificing on the altars. These are nothing, he says, nothing but piles of rocks. That's all I see. No matter how much blood you spill on them, All I see is a pile of rocks. God's done everything for them. Now Jacob fled to the land of Aram. Israel worked for a wife. For a wife he kept sheep. But by a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet he was protected. That's what God's done. He's done all that for these people. Ephraim on the other hand has provoked God to bitter anger. So what's the what's the end? So his lord will leave his guilt for bloodshed on him. You say wow. There's no hope for someone whose guilt is left on him. And that's where we end. Right here. So his Lord will leave his guilt for bloodshed on him and bring his disgrace back to him. Well, we have to stop there. We're going to get to some better stuff here at the end of the book. If you've read ahead, you know that. But in the meantime, God just keeps hammering away at us. And again, please don't say, no, he's hammering away at Ephraim. Yeah, no, we're, we're Ephraim. We're the ones. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones who are supposed to look back and see all these things as examples for us. And remember, in the midst of all this call to repentance... It's not exactly like, remember here, we've got this, taking them back to Egypt, taking them back to Egypt, bringing them out of Egypt. And they should have remembered in the exodus, in bringing, being brought out and being brought through the wilderness. What did God do? Well, he says what he did. The Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. But then what did he do? In the wilderness, they needed food, and he rained manna down on them, and that manna was the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they were thirsty, they needed water, and what did he do? Moses, go strike the rock, water will gush forth from the rock. And who did Paul tell us that rock was in the middle of the wilderness? The Lord Jesus Christ. All of this... They should have been thinking about that every time God remind, spoke of Egypt. Every time they thought about making a deal with Egypt, selling them their oil, he should, they should have thought, no, wait a minute. We came out of Egypt, and God provided for us, and God rep- was, was was in everything that happened out there. He was our God, and we were his people, and we're not going to do this. We're not going back to Egypt we're not going back to Egypt empty handed we're not going back to Egypt with barrels of oil we're going to the rock who's Jesus Christ we're not going to this pile of rocks and make a mockery of the sacrifices we're going to go to the one who set up the sacrificial system to point us to his own salvation for his own people so for us to live in the present and have future hope, we have to recognize God's work among his people in the past. Now, I want to tell you something. I started this with history as a wonderful teacher and that we should be students of history and we need to read history rightly. These folks failed the exam over and over and over. It would be a shame for us, knowing all that we know, to read the same history and fail the same exam. And the only way you fail this, don't worry, there's not an exam afterwards. The only way you fail this exam is not repenting, not turning to Christ, the rock, who is our salvation. Lord, thank you for your word. We ask you now to bless... This evening, in Jesus' wonderful name, amen.